What God plans will happen. Nothing can stop it, not even opposition. In fact, opposition under God's sovereignty will only help the plan along. I was talking recently to somebody in our church facing particularly difficult circumstances and he said to me, I just don't understand what God is doing with me right now. I wish I knew what he was up to. And um, most of us who are Christians here tonight will have said that and some of us will be saying that tonight. A corporate example would be the Department for Education turning down our application for a free school last year. So we had good parental demand. We were told it was a good application. It would have opened up huge opportunities, including planting a new congregation in the site of the school, and uh, it was turned down. So what was God doing with us in all that? And um, you individually could supply the examples which have left you feeling, what is God doing with me? In all this. Well, tonight's Bible passage in our 1 Samuel series sheds some light on those issues and problems. I only say some because many of the circumstances of our lives leave us not knowing exactly what God is doing in the specifics. But the Bible does tell us what his overarching plan is in general, so that we can make some sense of the Specifics, And that is what tonight's passage does. So would you turn in the Bibles back to page 241, page 241, and that will get you to 1 Samuel 18 and 19. And if you're a note taker, which I would encourage you to become, uh, there is the back of the service sheet. Page 241 in the Bibles. Now there are two main human characters in these chapters. One is Saul who is the first king of God's Old Testament people, Israel. The other is David, who by the start of 2 Samuel has replaced Saul as king. And in these chapters, Saul is trying repeatedly and failing to kill David. For example, look down to chapter 18, verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. And I don't know about you, I'm always impressed that David actually went back after the first attempt. If Personally, if I was doing music therapy and the patient tried to uh, kill me, I don't think that I would pay him the visit the next day. Now, those two verses are pretty typical of these two chapters, and if you read them over before coming, which is another habit I would encourage, you probably wondered, what is going on here? And the way to get at the answer to that question is to ask another, namely, what is God doing here? Because in any narrative bit of the Bible, God is actually the main character. And if you want to get at the main point, you need to ask the question, what is he doing here? Now, I've been given 1 Samuel 18 and 19, and my problem is not that that's too long a bit, but too short. 
The problem with our habits of personal Bible reading and Bible study groups and preaching is that we do very short bits. And there's wisdom in that, otherwise I'd keep you here all night. But it works least well for Old Testament narrative, where to see the big picture of what God is doing, you generally have to read five to ten chapters as opposed to the customary five to ten verses. And here in 1 Samuel, to see what God is doing in chapters 18 and 19, you've got to go all the way back to chapter 13 at least. So turn quickly back to chapter 13, verse 13, if you would. Chapter 13, verse 13. Chapter 13, verse 13. So Saul, the first king of Israel, has just blatantly disobeyed God. And chapter 13, verse 13. Samuel the prophet said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, which is a reference to David. So Saul is rejected as king. And if you ask the question, what is God up to in the rest of 1 Samuel? The answer is he's in the process of making David king. That's the plan. So in chapter 16, God sends Samuel to anoint David so that David now knows that that is the plan. In chapter 17, which we looked at last time, God gives David that extraordinary victory over Goliath so that everyone begins to see that David is king material. So turn back over to page 241, 241 and look at chapter 17 and verse 58. David has just dispatched Goliath. He's presented to Saul and chapter 17, verse 58, Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now read on, chapter 18. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, who was Saul's son, and next in line for the throne, was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him, that is David, that day, and wouldn't let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Back in chapter 14, Jonathan had taken on the Philistines and won in a similar God-trusting way to the David and Goliath encounter. So it's no surprise that he saw David as a kindred spirit. What is a surprise is what he does next in verse 4. And David stripped himself of the robe that was on him. Uh, sorry, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt, all of which was the uniform of the crown prince, of, of you know, the Prince Charles of the day, the, the next in line. And by taking it off and giving it to David, he is saying in action, I recognize you as the man who should be the next king. And later he says that in words. He says to David in chapter 23, you shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you and Saul my father knows it. And that was David's biggest problem. Look on to chapter 18, verse six. 
As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the city visit, uh, cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul had struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul kept an eye on David from that day on. So he also recognizes David as king material, and he is deeply threatened because he wants to cling on to his kingdom, even though God has said, you are not going to have it anymore. So in verses 10 to 11, where we began, he tries to kill David while David is playing music for him, as I say, as a kind of therapy for his mood swings. So it looks here like David is desperately vulnerable, but you've got to get that God is in the process of making David king. And what God plans will happen. And nothing can stop that, not even opposition to that. You may have heard the apocryphal story of the flight of the first fully automated plane. We, we, Boeing can't even get Dreamliners right, can they? Um, the, the apocryphal story, so this plane has no human pilot or crew, just computers and robots, and everyone gets on for the maiden flight, and, and, and over the PA comes this metallic voice saying, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome you aboard this first fully automated flight and to invite you to sit back and relax and to assure you that in the absence of human error, absolutely nothing can go wrong, can go wrong, can go wrong, can go wrong. That is, that is human plans for you. When it comes to God's plans, absolutely nothing can go wrong. Because for God, there are no unforeseen circumstances because he knows the future, because he creates the future. And because nothing and no one is outside his sovereignty. In other words, a kind of loose cannon that he can't control. That is why what God plans will happen and nothing can stop it, not even opposition. In fact, the only thing opposition to God can do is to help his plans along. Let's see that in verse 12 onwards. Verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. So knowing how impressed everybody is by David, Saul thinks, let's get him out of the royal court. Even better, let's get him in harm's way. Let's make him a commander of the army. See if someone else can bump him off for me. What is the result? Verse 14. And David had success in all his undertakings because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them, which is a figure of speech for led their armies. So what Saul does to oppose David actually results in everyone taking him even more to their hearts as king material. In other words, the opposition only serves to help God's plan along. And you see that twice more in chapter 18, as Saul offers David each of his daughters in turn in marriage. Look down to verse 17. Then Saul said to David, here's my elder daughter Merab, I will give her to you for a wife only. Be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. 
So his thinking is, you know, if I let him marry into the royal family, he's going to be obligated to me. I then drop in the hint that I want him to fight the Philistines for me, and sooner or later one of them will do my dirty work for me. Saul then goes back on the offer of Merab, but then offers his other daughter, Michael. So skip on to verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him, because Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Skip for time's sake to verse 25. Then Saul said... Thus shall you say to David, this is a bit gross, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Gruesome detail, but in those days apparently it was a common way of bringing back evidence of the number of enemy dead. Read on. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. That's his plan. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines in defensive battles against them. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So what he does to get rid of David actually plants David firmly in the royal family. So let's back off the detail there. The big lesson is what God plans will happen and nothing can stop that. Now David knew that God's plan very specifically for him was that he was going to be king because through the prophet Samuel, God had told him. He said, you're going to be king. Now, that is where David was quite unlike us, and we cannot expect to know God's plan for us very specifically in the same way. For example, it was not revealed to me by prophecy, say, 20 years ago, that I would now be serving JPC and married to Tess. God does not reveal the specifics of his plan for us in advance. We only know them in retrospect. So at the time where I had to say yes or no to David about coming here, and initially I said no, and as you know, he can talk the hind legs off a donkey. Um, At the time when I had to give my answer to David, at the time when I had to think, was I going to pop the question to Tess, I didn't know that either of those things was God's plan. In retrospect, it's pretty obvious that they were because they happened. But God does not reveal the specifics of his plan in advance. In the Bible, he has revealed his overarching plan, his plan in general, if I can put it like that. For example, one example, Matthew 16, verse 18, the Lord Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we are told it is definitely God's plan to build his church, that is numerically and in maturity. But we are not told specifically what that is going to look like at any given place and in any given time. So take, for example, our plan of last year for a free school and a new congregation planted on the site of the school. We didn't push that door because we knew it was God's plan. We didn't. 
We did know from the Bible in general that it is God's plan to build his church, number one, and that it is God's plan for Christian parents to bring their children up in the training and instruction of the Lord, as the Bible says, and that it is a win-win situation when the ethos of school and home and church all line up. That's why we pushed the door and the DfE kept it shut. So did Her Majesty's government thwart God? No. What God plans will happen. So through the DfE, we discovered that that was not God's plan for us specifically to open a free school this September. And their opposition to our proposal under God's sovereignty will only serve to help God's plan along. Maybe it was too much too soon for us and it would have damaged us as a congregation. Maybe in three years' time, when we are opening our school, we will look back and say, thank you, Lord, for letting the DfE shut the door then, because this is a far better school than that one ever would have been under government constraints. That is how we are to see things. What God plans will happen. Nothing can stop it. Not even opposition. In fact, opposition under God's sovereignty will only help the plan along. Okay, back to 1 Samuel. God's plan here was ultimately to make David king, and therefore he had to protect David's life so that he could actually get to being king. And protecting him is what he does in chapter 19. That's the big idea there. First of all, through Jonathan. So look on to chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David, and he successfully pleads with his dad for, for David's life. So look on to halfway through verse 7. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before, mixed blessing. As we've seen, that was not the safest place in the world to be, and the music therapist has another close shave in verse 9. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul again as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. I think that's saying he was insecure and jealous and hateful in spirit as a result of the Lord rejecting him as king. In that sense, it was a harmful spirit from the Lord, from the Lord's rejection of him. Read on. David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night, doubtless wondering, you know, just what was wrong with his playlist. You know, I mean, should he be more Radio 2 than Classic FM? You know, what is going on here? So God protects David first through Jonathan, then through prudent ducking and diving, and then through his wife, Michael. Read on verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you don't escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. And then finally, God protects David quite supernaturally. Look on to verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told Saul, behold, David's at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, which probably means take him out. 
And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. Now, we're not certain what prophesying means, but in 1 Chronicles 25, the same word is used of people caught up in spirit-led worship of the Lord. And although these messengers were probably as irreligious as Saul, I take it that the Holy Spirit stops them in their tracks with this overwhelming sense of God and of, oh, no, you don't. So they're out of the game. Skip to verse 22. Then Saul himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they're at Nioth at Ramah. And he went there to Nioth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked. Better translation would be stripped down. It doesn't necessarily mean in the buff. All that day and all that night. Uh, the ESV is not a perfect translation. <laughs> <clears throat> So he too is supernaturally stopped in his tracks from harming David. Okay, ancient history, how do we apply that to ourselves? Should we identify with David and say, God will protect me just like he protected David? No, because unlike me, God had promised David that he would be king. So unlike me, God had to keep David alive. So, for example, we can't apply this today by saying, therefore, no Christians in the world today will be killed by opposition to the faith. You know that's untrue. We can say, more generally, that this illustrates the way that the Lord does protect his people and his cause, the cause of the gospel and the church. Sometimes that is through human means, like Jonathan and Michael. Uh, for example, the Christian Union at my school was viciously opposed by the, most of the teaching staff um, who thought of themselves as giant intellectuals and Christianity as nonsense. They would love to have seen the CU closed down. And yet the, the headmaster, who was not himself a Christian, was a friend of the Christian Union. He protected it inexplicably unless you actually realize by reading something like this what the explanation is. But then sometimes the protection is totally supernatural. For example, I remember one missionary biography um, where a mission compound in Africa, in one of the states in Africa, was surrounded by armed rebels who would have captured, if not killed, the missionaries inside and who suddenly turned tail, fled back to their vehicles and ran. And a local eyewitness said this, it was because a great number of men, looking like warriors, appeared on the roof of the compound. I think they can only have been angels. Isn't that striking? And you will probably be aware of particular moments when God has protected you physically or morally or from opposition or from a bad decision or whatever. And I wonder how much he protects us in the average week, without us even knowing it. One last word on how to read this as Christians. We know, living this side of Jesus, that David and his kingdom foreshadowed Jesus and his kingdom. So just like you could say back then, God's plan is for David to be king, you can say now, 
God's plan is for Jesus, who David foreshadowed, to be king. So if David foreshadows Jesus, maybe we better not be too quick to identify with him, but say, do I need to identify with one or other of the other main characters? Saul, Jonathan. Because Saul represents everyone who understands Jesus' claim to be our rightful God and King, but who does not want him to be. And people like that often react as strongly as Saul against the gospel because they cannot help seeing Jesus as anything but a threat to living life as they want to. So, for example, I remember uh, someone in one of the Christianity Explored groups that I've led about week four saying to me at the end, the more I see of this, the less I like it. You prepared for that reaction in the next few months? And maybe that is still you. Maybe you're still a Saul at heart. You know it's true, but you don't want Jesus to be king because maybe there's one area of life in particular that you want to have to yourself. The alternative, of course, is to be a Jonathan because he represents everyone who does recognize Jesus as king and instead of being threatened by that, welcomes that and hands it all over, the robe and the armor, hands over to Jesus the right to run his life, knowing that Jesus will make a far better job of it than we ever could as the sinners and foolish people that we are. And that is the gospel foreshadowed in these chapters. It is that God's plan is to make Jesus king of everything and that nothing can stop that. Even those who crucified him couldn't stop that. At that point, they were only helping the plan along at its supreme moment where Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins, as we remember in this communion service. They couldn't stop that. They couldn't stop God raising him from the dead ever since when he's been reigning in heaven and enabling people to change sides through his forgiveness. And the question is, which side of Jesus and his plans are you on? Let's pray. Father, we think of how your plan to make David king foreshadowed your eternal plan to make Jesus king. And we thank you that because you are sovereign and faithful, your plan, everything you plan, will happen. We thank you that before he comes again, Jesus will build his church and protect it. And that once he comes again, we who trust in him will live under his unopposed kingdom, unspoiled by our sin, the sin of anyone else, or any other evil. And we pray that you'd help us both to make the decisions we face and to respond to the circumstances you've put us in by the light of your plan revealed in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.